Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek all new observations and data. To boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to episode 87 of the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. My name is Tim Roberts and I'm the host of the Observer's Notebook and also the coordinator of the training program with the ALPO. Hey, thanks for downloading and listening. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon and publishes these and detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, The Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you do enjoy what you hear on the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon. You can give as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous, $5, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook, the official handbook of the training program within the ALPO. And for $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash Observer's Notebook. If you'd like to join the ALPO, membership begins at only $18 a year. For more information, you can find us on alpo-astronomy.org. And we are also on the Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy. And this podcast also has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. And if you enjoy what you hear in the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss another episode of the Observer's Notebook. And now, episode 87, a very special one. I think you'll enjoy it. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to the Observer's Notebook podcast. Today, we have a special guest uh, from Software Bisque, uh, the senior software engineer and product developer, Richard Wright. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Now, before we get into our topic today, why don't you just give everybody a little bit of introduction about yourself, what you do, and things like that. Uh, so, I, I work for Software Bisque. I'm uh, one of the senior developers there uh, and imaging specialists. Um, my specialty coming into software BISC was cross-platform and graphics technologies. And actually, when I joined the company about 17 years ago now, um, I really wasn't much of an imager or I was a closet imager. And I got more involved in imaging uh, not long after I started uh, started working there and I started working on camera plugins for the sky. And so that developed a, kind of a love for camera technologies. And uh, so I sort of just specialized in that uh, to some degree. Um, I've been an amateur astronomer, I guess, since childhood, mostly did uh, mostly visual um, up until um, well, about the last 20 years or so, got into, got into imaging. Okay. But my primary profession is a software, software developer, software engineer, so I'm kind of an accidental astronomer. I, <laughs> one of the great things about being a, a software engineer is every discipline, every industry needs computer people, and I just really loved astronomy, and it was like, well, shoot. Somebody in the astronomy field needs a programmer. So um, <laughs> there you go. Marry the two together. <laughs> right. So I started, I uh, I was uh, 
not happy where I was. And so I started looking around and uh, actually I worked for Starry Night initially, oh. uh, helping them with their OpenGL implementation. And then um, uh, left them about a year later and uh, joined Software Bisk. And I've, I've been with Software Bisk ever since. Great. Now you're in Florida? Yes. Yes. I, I get to work remotely from uh, Central Florida. Kind of outside Orlando. Uh, okay. Guys aren't too bad here. I'm not like on the side of Orlando where all the attractions are. So I can do narrowband stuff and I can do a lot of research and development in my own backyard. Uh, but I have a, a dark sky camp down in Okeechobee, Florida, which is right next to a, a big state park and a lot of a lot of dairy farms and sod farms. So you can see the Milky Way down there oh. and I can get in some, some dark sky imaging uh, from there. What type of uh, observing equipment do you have? Um, all of it. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's of a really... typical answer when I ask yeah, that question. That, that could be half the podcast, just naming off telescopes. <laughs> right, right. One of, one of the best things about working in the industry no. is, um, you know, it, it's all, uh, you know, some of it is, you know, I have a, I have three Paramounts, so the Mighty and the Index Plus and the Paramount ME, I call that the company cars. Um, and I have a lot of cameras because I, I do support for the cameras. So I kind of figured that out, you know, pretty early. It was like, nobody really wanted to write camera plugins. It was like, well, I'll do one. Well, that wasn't so bad. And, oh, I get to play with the camera. And then it was like, well, I'll do another one. And the next thing you know, I have, uh, you know, a nice arsenal of cameras. I have the world's best mount and the world's best software. And, um, Telescope wise, I've, I've kind of had to accumulate those on my own, but I have a, you know, I've procured a, you know, um, I've got a nice collection of uh, refractors. Uh, a lot of, I have all, all four of the Esprit uh, Skywatcher uh, refractors, and I have a Lomo Russian uh, refractor and a Takahashi, and I've got my, um, my. the Riccardi Honda's uh, RH200, so the Veloce from Alfacina Stellari. That was my first big telescope uh expense i think it was the most money i'd ever spent on anything other than a car and i <laughs> kind of had to sweet talk my wife a little bit we had a, a little bit of a financial windfall and i said you know what i want to do with this i want to buy a really expensive telescope and somehow she was like okay whatever and that was sort of the beginning uh you found a good the woman there of my collection <laughs> that's good now can you give us a little bit of background the history of software bisque uh, Software BISC has been going since uh, 1984. Our founder Steve BISC uh, was in a um, was in a bike accident and uh, laid up and uh, was said, "Bring me my laptop. I can't lay here and do nothing." And so he started making an astronomy program, and he called it The Sky. And a couple of years later, uh, he was advertising it in Sky and Telescope. And a couple of years later, he was hiring uh, his brothers. Um, and a couple of years later, you know, the, the rest is history, so to speak. So it started off just software with the sky, and then they got into uh, making mounts and uh, camera control. Uh, they partnered with SPEG early on, and some other some other people. They really pioneered a lot of what we a lot of what we take for granted today in terms of you know a, a computer program on your laptop controlling your mount and controlling your camera and uh, using a guider. And, all that sort of thing um and so it's been about it's over 30 plus years i think it's close to 35 years now that they they just celebrated a, 
Yeah, I think I had maybe version three of the sky. I don't know. It was an early, early on version years and years ago. Right, right. Wow. Great. Well, I reached out to you a little while ago because of an article that you wrote in Sky and Telescope magazine. And it was titled CCD, Mm -hmm. CMOS, and the Future of Astrophotography. And that just jumped out and grabbed me. I just, uh, I want to know what the future of this is because this is, this is a big deal to us amateur astronomers. You know, what is the next best thing? What's going on? What's going to, you know, what, mm-hmm. what, what kind of imaging are we going to be able to do next? So if you can, in a nutshell, can you give us just a brief history of imaging? Uh, a brief history of imaging. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, in the beginning, there was film. <laughs> and uh, I, I did some film imaging, but I, I was a complete and total coward. Uh, I, I imaged the moon with film. Okay. Uh, so, you know, with a big reflector, you can shoot the moon just like you can shoot birds. It was no big deal. One eight hundredths of a second, you bracket your exposures and you bracket your focus. And mm-hmm. I, I took the film to Walmart and had them develop it. So, yes, I did astrophotography with film, but it doesn't really count. If you talk to any of the old timers who had to do film hypering and guiding through the eyepiece, you know, out in the cold, those those people were. Uh, those are the real heroes of, of imaging. Right. I, I think if I had, if I had been imaging um, electronically, I'm pretty sure I would have beat Espig to inventing the auto guider. Cause there's no way I would have <laughs> sat out in the cold with the joystick and tried to keep the star centered on the crosshairs. Um, oh yeah. I, I know, I know like Tony Hallis and Bob Fair and people like that. And I knew them back in the eighties when they mm-hmm. would do these six hour exposures all night and then an airplane would that, fly across the field of view. Uh, and I'm like, Oh God, guys. <laughs> yeah, those was, people are athletes. That's an endurance yeah. sport. Uh, it really is. To do that, really. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, CCD imaging, uh, came along. Uh, the CCD chip was, was originally not even envisioned as a, as an imaging chip. It was, it was originally designed to be a memory circuit and it turns out it was, um, I'm, I'm not sure the story how they figured out it was uh, sensitive to light. Light would dislodge some electrons and it would it would build up in the wells and then you could read it out and you would get numbers for each pixel. And those numbers indicated the brightness uh, of the image. And so first, you know, they were all monochrome and we would put a red filter to get red light and a blue filter to get blue light. And later on, we um, somebody named Bayer came up with an idea of putting down a Bayer matrix on the monochrome chip. Mm-hmm. And that covers some of it. Really, color chips and, and monochrome chips are the same chip circuitry. Um, just one has a, a layer of, of colored filter on top of it. So you get uh, a red pixel and a blue pixel and two green pixels. And so you get sort of this screen door pattern image, and it just sort of interp- you interpolate the, the values to make the color image. And you know, you don't get as much data when you do that. Those filters don't block a lot more light than the monochrome filters do. So the the uh, efficiency of the chip isn't quite as high. And you use a little bit of spatial resolution. But, you know, in the long, look at a DSLR. Nobody who shoots with an electronic DSLR is complaining about those issues. So I, I think mm-hmm. that if we worry about that with astrophotography, it's sort of a fringe case. If you have fast optics that deliver a lot of light to a color a color sensor, you're going to get plenty of signal, and you can you can make make do with that. Of course, monochrome is, is a little more um, flexible. If you want to do narrow band or some fancy stuff, I like to do infrared sometimes, or just shooting hydrogen alpha. 
also think people should shoot luminance. Uh, you can, it's surprising what you get from luminance, even under a light, dark polluted, I mean, uh, a light polluted sky. Uh, what, 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 um, what, you said luminance? Yeah, luminance. Just shoot black and white. Like, really okay. shoot black and white. Don't try to make a color image. It, okay. it, you know, and I, I'll, I'll get some hate mail about this, but, you know, <laughs> color color imaging is hard. You, It's so much easier to learn to stretch and calibrate with one color channel. And most, most color images, you know, when you first start, they look terrible. Um, learning how to color balance is, is a tricky, is a tricky, right. difficult thing. And beginners want to see something in color, but I think beginners would be a lot more, a lot more successful if they started in monochrome and um, made beautiful monochrome images. Uh, so I, I like to just shoot monochrome sometimes. You get mm. so much more contrast uh, from them, especially if you're under light polluted skies, or even you could shoot hydrogen alpha uh, for that. But Anyway, that's an editorial you probably weren't looking for. Today, <laughs> no, that's fine. It's fine. It's interesting. Now, in, in your article, you say that the days of CCDs are numbered. Why? Well, you know, all technology, the days on any technology are, are numbered. Um, they're they're going to be replaced by, by CMOS, uh, most certainly. Um, it, it's a question of how many, you know, is it a big number or is it a very small number? Uh, really, anybody who's shopping for a camera shouldn't look at, oh, that's CMOS, I should get it, or, oh, that's CCD, I, I should not get it. Um, by and large, the, the gap between the two are closing. I guess sort of a summary, and you can you can, um, you can can drill down on this, I, I suppose. The summary of CCDs still work better for uh, low-light uh, imaging. They calibrate better. Uh, they have less... Um, uh, a lot, a lot of factors that really make them well suited for that. Uh, CMOS is catching up very quickly. The catching up doesn't mean it's caught it; it just means that it's getting closer. Uh, for some applications, um, CMOS is, is really kind of already won. Like for lucky imaging, if you're doing solar system, uh, you know, lunar or planetary or solar imaging, and, and you're trying to do video, uh, you know, by and large, there are some very, very fast CCD chips, but they're horribly expensive and they're they're very niche. But by and large, you can get a cheap CMOS camera that can do you know 60 frames a second, and you can't CCDs really can't compete with that. Um, there are some noise characteristics and things that that people want to argue about. But uh, when you're when you're shooting the moon or Jupiter with a 14 inch telescope, you've got a lot of light. And so some of the things we worry about for uh, deep sky images don't really count right. uh, in, those, in those situations. So I, I would say that in the in the realm of lucky imaging and solar system imaging, CCDs have already surpassed, uh, I mean, CMOS has already surpassed uh, CCD in terms of value yeah, uh, and, and what they can do. This this article grabbed me partially because of what I do for a living. I, I work for NASA and on a Earth weather satellite. Uh, and the, one of the instruments I work on is called VIRS, Visible Infrared Imager and Radiometer Suite. And one of the big detectors we have on it is a day-night band. And so with this, it's where we use CCD imagers. And just like you said, they're really sensitive to low light. And some of the prettiest pictures we have from, from our satellite are the nighttime images of the Earth. Wow. Yeah, you know, so that's it's that's and and I talked to actually one of our scientists about this. I said, "Are we going to go CMOS?" He goes, "No, right now CCDs are the way we're going with our instruments." So it's it was, it's mm -hmm. it's interesting. Now, right, right. I think in the amateur community, it's it's hard it's hard to convince people that they should stick with CMOS or that CMOS is. I mean, uh, CCD is 
is better. Uh, scientists that I talked to, I've, I've talked to some scientists and CMOS just isn't even anywhere close. Hmm. Um, one of the problems is AMP Glow. Uh, it, it really throws off uh, calibrations and they're, they're doing some very meticulous uh, calibration. Um, they, they, they need things to be very accurate for photometry. And you can do like you can do a lot of useful things with CMOS today. But um, one that I was talking to he said there's nobody has a CMOS camera uh, because if they did, they buy it. Uh, mm-hmm. That that will do as well uh, as, as what they want to do. Now that that doesn't mean that's not going to change in the near future. Already there's new CMOS technologies on the market. There was a paper I read a couple months ago in a physics journal on. Um, how to fix uh, amp glow in uh, CMOS uh, sensors. I know Starlight, well, I know at least one other uh, vendor that's working on a, a low uh, amp glow technologies. And um, where are some other things? CMOS, some of the pattern noise on CMOS is also worse than on uh, most CCDs. And, and the thing is, you remember CCD, comparing CCDs and CMOS is like comparing hamburger and steak. I think I mentioned this analogy in the in the article mm-hmm. but i'll say it here too you know in general you can say in general steak is better than hamburgers but it, you know it depends on where where you're getting the hamburger or the steak and True. depends on how hungry you are and it depends on what your your thing is there, there's people listening to this right now saying well i did this with ccd and i did this with the cmos and the cmos was better and and i have no doubt i have no doubt at all you can find a cmos sensor that beats a ccd sensor so we're being very general here um, because, you know, a cheap, a cheap camera is going to perform like a cheap camera. It's not right. going to matter whether it's CMOS or CCD. And a really expensive camera is going to, um, is going to work really well. Uh, usually, you know, it doesn't matter if it's CMOS uh, or CCD. There's some very good C- CMOS cameras uh, on the market. I, I'm pretty particular as an imager and I have my favorite CCD cameras that I just love and I just for a long time I just there was no CMOS camera that I liked uh friends would get them and they would show me their images and it's great you can get an image but I know I know that you had to work really hard to get that image in post processing um, because I know that they don't calibrate very well but that was a couple of years ago and currently um I have at least one CMOS camera uh, that I've used a couple of times. It's full frame CMOS. Uh, it's made with a DSLR chip. It's an expensive CMOS camera. Um, you know, nobody's $500 camera is going to be a $3,000 camera. But if you, uh, this, this particular CMOS camera that I'm talking about, it's about a $3,500 CMOS camera and it does very well. Um, it, uh, it's not very noisy. The pattern noise is uh, extremely low. Uh, so it calibrates out well, or you just expose long enough to get over the, the pattern noise, and it does a it does a very good job um, hmm. for it. Um, I'm very excited. I haven't had a chance to try QHY 600. Everybody is raving about that. That's a monochrome CMOS, and it, it's a 16-bit readout. A lot of people don't um, uh, don't realize how important it is to have more than like a 12-bit readout on your camera, but a full 16-bit readout with deep wells on a CMOS chip is quite remarkable. And, you know, five years ago, you couldn't find a chip like that available to amateur astronomers, and you can today. So imagine, you know, in another five years, what, uh, you know, what's going to be, what's going to be out. Yeah. Now let's, let, I'd like to back up 
sure, just a, sure. a little I bit. I just kind of blather a lot. So, no, you know, so. this is no, this is fine. This is fine. Um, I, I want to appeal to all of our listeners out there, and, and I'm sure there are some that are going CCD, CMOS. I don't know what the heck you're talking about. So, can you just give us um, explain the architecture of CCD versus CMOS imagers and what, uh, what the differences sure. are? Sure. So, a CCD, how how any imager works is they're they're made out of silicon crystals. And when light hits those crystals, and I'm being very overly simplistic here, but when light hits those crystals, it um, it dislodges uh, an electron, which is a you know a subatomic well atomic particle, an electron. And the sensors have sort of buckets that collect these electrons. So as light hits the sensor, it uh, each photon can turn into an electron, and then you can read out and see how many electrons there were. So if you read out 500 electrons, that means you detected 500 uh, photons uh, of light. Now, not every photon gets converted into an electron. We call that the quantum efficiency. So if half of the light turns into electrons, we we call that a 50% uh, quantum efficiency. And in that regard, both CCD and CMOS really work the same. They they work by the, the same physical principle that turns light uh, into an electron. It doesn't really turn it into an electron, but uh, that counts light with electrons. Um, the big difference between a CCD and a CMOS is the CCD is laid out in a grid pattern, and the buckets of electrons with the numbers in it uh, get shifted, uh, sort of like a big, you've seen an old movie where there's a barn on fire and you get a big line of people with buckets and they're, right. they're passing the buckets left and right. That's sort of how a CCD reads out the image. It reads out one pixel at a time, uh, one row at a time, and it just kind of shifts all of that, all of that data. Um, a CMOS uh, sensor, instead of shifting the data out like that, it actually reads out all of the data sort of simultaneously. Yeah. And so this is really the, the biggest advantage of a CMOS sensor is the readout speed. It can read all of those pixels into memory uh, very, very fast, where the LCD has to shift all of those pixels to come uh, into memory. The, the cost of that is CMOS sensors are far more complicated. There's actually quite a bit more electronic circuitry on a CMOS sensor than there is on a CCD sensor. Uh, also, all of that electronics um, adds, you know, different challenges to the, to the chip. Um, if it's not, uh, the electronics get in the way of, of light getting to where it can be, um, can be detected. So sometimes the quantum efficiency can be a little lower for a CMOS. I would say that problem's been largely solved, but, it, but it was a ch- it's a challenge uh, due to the, the technology. Uh, also, all of those electronics add uh, additional noise. Uh, so when you're reading out the data, it's not perfect. And so the data fluctuates a little bit. We call that the read noise. In addition to the read noise, all of that extra circuitry is energized and it emits um, infrared light or heat. And uh, that also creates false signal in the yeah. CMOS chip. And so now you've got uh, amp glow and, and things in the corner. And sometimes that is not it doesn't calibrate out very well, meaning if you take a dark frame that's got the amp glow and you take a light frame and it's got the amp glow and you're like, well, I'll just subtract the two and it's on. It doesn't, it's 
not that repeatable, so it doesn't really clean up the amp glow uh, that well. Plus, the amp glow is building up signal, which is which is filling your um, filling your buckets up. And so now, you know, if you've got a lot of signal from your deep sky object, you've got the amp glow adding to that, and you start and you can kind of run out of a little bit of room uh, in those areas. So those areas with severe amp glow don't don't clean up very good. And that's also the amp glow has gotten better just in the last few years. And I I, I think it's a problem that'll go away completely, and you know, with, certainly within you know the next decade, probably uh, sooner than that. But it's still it's still an issue, and it's still a competitive advantage that CCDs have uh, over CMOS uh, sensors right now. Interesting. Yeah, uh, I mean, ten years ago, um, professional cameras, professional photographers, uh, they did mm-hmm. they, they if they used digital SLR, they all had CC. Were they st- still using CCDs about ten years ago? Weren't they? Right, right, yeah. and now there's CMOS. Now there's and, CMOS. You know, that's another that's an, another important factor um, about uh, CMOS. People who've been making CCD cameras for a long time have a lot of experience, and you'll see well, a DSLR can use a CMOS chip, and you get a pretty clean image. And if you buy a low cost CMOS camera, uh, it can be pretty noisy. One of the reasons for that is that the chip manufacturers, when they when they sell chips, they also provide Kind of what we call a sample implementation. They'll, they'll provide a camera kit. Here's some sample. Here's a sample electronic design for a camera to control the chip. And so a budget camera, they'll just use that sample design around that chip. But the sample design is not very good. Uh, if you've got somebody like Canon or Nikon, they've got engineers who are you know very highly paid engineers who are very good at what they're doing, and they'll design those cameras and they'll get very good data out of the CMOS. If you're using one of those camera kits, it's almost like a build-it-yourself radio shot kit. You're not going to get great results. But again, at the same time, this was true five years ago. A lot of most CMOS cameras, in my opinion, were very poor. But the CMOS camera vendors, they've had five years of practice. And so they're starting to modify those designs and they're starting to learn some tricks. And the CMOS cameras are again; they're getting they're getting very they're getting very good. Uh, I and I don't know if I I just kind of want to reemphasize the point. Uh, a friend of mine the other day said he was he said, "Hey, I was looking at this camera at CMOS. What do you think?" And I'm like, "Yeah, it's not it's not one I would want, but you know, I have a ten thousand dollars CCD camera that's really great. If <laughs> if you can only afford a you know fifteen hundred dollars CMOS camera." You're probably still going to get good results out of right. that. It, it's 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 not fair to say. Well, if you can't afford a ten thousand dollar or five thousand dollar CCD, I guess you shouldn't get into imaging at all. <laughs> um, a lot of people are getting really great results with CMOS cameras. Uh, so again, I'm not saying CMOS isn't any good, uh, but it's it is it's like comparing steak and, and hamburger. And I've had right. some really great hamburgers. And, that, that uh, I've had some really lousy steaks. I'm sure yep. everybody else. Elf has too. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah. In, in your article, you discuss the challenges of CMOS and, and you mentioned nonlinearity and amplifier glow. What, what, what is that? Well, the amp glow uh, is what I was talking about a minute ago, where uh, the circuitry on the CMOS chip is, uh, is warm. And so it's heating up the chip, which ah. creates a fake signal. Uh, so it's not really a signal from your target, it's a signal from, um, from the electronics that, that's polluting your polluting your image, and I saw 
Amplow, uh, I had the original Canon uh, Rebel. I remember when I when I bought that, mm. uh, and I bought it for for regular daytime photos, and then I started using it for astrophotography, and it it had pretty get pretty bad amp glow uh, at the bottom. I don't see hardly any amp glow in a, in a modern DSLR, and so there's no reason to think that that's not going to happen with astro uh, astro cameras as well. In fact, it's already happening with astro cameras. I've seen a lot of CMOS cameras that have almost no or negligible uh, amp glow. I know uh, for science, almost no amp glow isn't quite good enough, uh, depending right. on the type of science you're doing. Right. Uh, of course. Uh, now the nonlinearity is is also important. So linearity is um, uh, is a it's not it's a little bit hard. It sounds like some kind of fancy math word or something. But really, what it means is you know if you get x amount of light, you get x amount of signal. And if you get two x light, you get two x signal. So you put ten times more light in there, you get ten times more signal. You put a thousand times more light, you get a thousand times more signal. So that's linearity, and and CCDs are are largely linear uh, throughout most of their uh, range. Uh, CMOS uh, bounces around a little bit, so if you add twice as much light, you may only get 1.8 more signal, and then you add four times more light, and you get 3.9 times more signal. And so, um, what that causes, what one of the problems with that is, if you're doing photometry, uh, like you're trying to measure star brightness. If it's really severely nonlinear, uh, then you can't use it for that type of science at all. If it's only a little nonlinear, uh, you can get away with it. But the problem with nonlinearity, too, is if you're trying to calibrate uh, your images with flats, uh, it makes it very difficult to get a good flat field calibration. If you have a very clean imaging system and all you have is a little vignetting, you, you might can clean that up you know, with a post-processing tool that fixes the vignetting. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you have dust bunnies or, or other types of optical aberrations, plus there's a type of noise um, that you get when, um, with, with high signal data. So if you're under really light polluted skies, there's a type of noise called PRNU or photoresponse non-uniformity. Um, but it's a, it's a type of a granularity noise that only flats actually calibrate out. But if the sensor's not linear, that calibration, again, uh, doesn't. Uh, doesn't work. Is that pattern uh, noise? Uh, yes, it's a type okay. of pattern noise. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Every pixel is not 100% identically sensitive to light. And so there's some variation in the sensitivity of light from pixel to pixel. And that, now, that's what that represents. And CMOS is more susceptible to pattern noise than CCDs are. Uh, well, CMOS has uh, the same type of pattern noise as the PRNU. Without without a linear response, it's very difficult to calibrate out the PRNU. Uh, since you brought up pattern noise, there's also dark pattern noise, which is what uh, the bias frames uh, will um, will calibrate out. And one of the problems with low cost CMOS, uh, and I don't see this as much in the in the more expensive CMOS cameras because it's due again it's due to the electronics around the chip, is um, the pattern noise moves around a lot. So if you do like picture after picture of, and you're like taking darks or you're doing a high frame rate and you're looking at the bias, you see these lines bouncing all over the place. On a CCD, it's mostly static bouncing all over the place. On a CMOS, there's lines and they bounce up and down and they're never in the same place. And so those, those don't calibrate out very, very readily. And if you don't get a lot of signal 
when you, if you're deep sky imaging to get high enough above that, then when you start stretching your image, those lines and artifacts start to come out. And uh, when you stack your image, your data, sometimes you see streaks in it, and that's all from that pattern noise. And um, it's because it's because it didn't calibrate out very well. Hmm. Now, look for long exposure deep sky astrophotography. How do CCDs and CMOS imagers compare in the term of like dark, dark current thermal noise? Uh, the uh, CMOS is. Uh, I think the CMOS is a little worse. Okay. Uh, so the CMOS is better for shorter exposures, whereas okay. CCDs stand up for longer exposures a little bit better. Is that because a CMOS is more sensitive, or? The CMOS is, uh, no, the CMOS has more, um, the, the amp glow gets worse the longer you expose, yeah. and the uh, and the thermal noise is, is often worse, uh, you know, the longer you go. Okay. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Great. Wow. <laughs> now, uh, cost benefits. Like you mentioned earlier, that it's an amateur astronomer. If they don't have an understanding wife, let them go out and buy the most expensive telescopes that they've ever gotten. <laughs> um, what are the costs? Is there, is there a line in the sand that you would say you can get a good CCD imager up to this point, but after this dollar value, I'd start looking to CMOS? Is there something like that? Uh, no, I don't, I don't really think so. I mean, if your budget, if you have an unlimited budget, you're probably going to buy a high-end CCD camera. Okay. Um, if you're, if you're, you know, your most people don't have an unlimited budget. So if you only have five thousand dollars, really five thousand dollars is going to buy you a really good camera, whether it's female, CMOS, or CCD. I think people don't get into trouble until they're down in the. I only have a thousand dollars to spend, um, and and then. You know, realistically, even then, you're going to get a camera that's usable. And, I, and it's the only thing I want to, the only, um, the only really thing that people need to understand is your your thousand dollar camera is not going to perform as well as a three thousand or five thousand dollar camera. Um, if you have a cheap CMOS, a cheap CCD camera, it probably isn't going to work as well as an expensive CMOS. And if you have a cheap CMOS, it's not going to work as as well as an expensive CMOS. But could you write some software to make it as good? Uh, I've had some <laughs> conversations uh, about trying to make, um, uh, try to uh, basically sort of characterize your CMOS filter to, to make it linear or mm -hmm. uh, seem like it's linear. Uh, I'm not sure that's going to be necessary in the long run. I think in the long run, they'll fix the linearity problem. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's all, it all boils down to image processing. What I love about a really clean CCD image is if it's well calibrated and well exposed, they're just very easy to process. Right. I don't have to do a great deal of noise control and have to do a lot of, uh, fancy algorithms to try to, to try to fix it. I don't want to spend eight hours processing my, my image data. Mm -hmm. True, true, true. Now for planetary imaging, as opposed to deep sky imaging, are there sensor preferences there? For planetary? Uh, I, I would say for planetary. Yes. Um, to buy a really fast CCD camera is, is, I'm talking to a friend in the who, who works in the semiconductor industry, and he was telling me there are CCD cameras that are just as fast as a CMOS camera. 
but they're not they're not in our market um they're mm-hmm. not in our in our domain i have a i have a three or four hundred dollar zwo camera and um it does great uh i do uh lunar and and i'm not you know singling out zwo specifically i'm just right. saying there's, there's a very there's a budget camera and it does a high frame rate and you get a lot of signal from the moon or one of the or the planets and um I don't know that I could do better with a CCD camera than I could with that very low cost uh, CMOS CMOS hmm. camera. You get a USB three connection because you know a lot of the noise problems uh, when you've got a lot of signal, uh, the noise the other types of noise are much easier to mitigate. You're, you're doing very short exposures. Uh, the signal is way above the pattern noise, um, and uh, and chief of chief concern when you're trying to beat the scene with lucky imaging is a high frame rate. So you just can't beat, um, you know, a CMOS camera with a small uh, a small chip on a CMOS camera for a high frame rate. And you got so much light coming from your uh, from your solar system object, right? Uh, that a lot of the noise problems sort of you know fix themselves. You still need to you you, you still need to uh, calibrate your flats most likely. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know the the thermal noise. Uh, and the the pat the dark pattern noise isn't uh, as much of an issue when when you're doing that short of an exposure with that much signal on the chip. Okay. What about deep sky imaging? For deep sky, uh, I would say there are some CMOS chips on the market that do very well, and there's that do very well already. I still I, I have like I said I have one CMOS camera that I like to use from time to time. It's a one shot color, and I don't always shoot one shot color, uh, but when I do, that's the one I use. Okay. Um, but I've got a you know I've got a sixteen eight hundred three and a sixteen two hundred. Those are pretty good sized mono chips, and um, I guess the sixteen two hundred is probably my favorite. Is, is one of my favorite uh, sensors. In terms of giving me a, a nice clean image on a on a big chip, the Sony six nine four is also a miraculously um, clean and sensitive sensor. Its problem is it's very small, uh, and those sensors are going to be around for a while. Sony's making those. You'll be able to buy six nine fours for another ten years probably. Oh, okay. But it's a very small chip, so uh, you know we want bigger chips a lot of times so we get more real estate. Uh, not everybody has a closet with 13 different telescopes where they can just pair it. I don't know. Most of the people I talked to on this podcast do. It's it's great fun to pair a telescope with a camera like this, like pairing wine with meat or chicken Uh, or something. No, you're talking about language. I'm shooting shooting in 41 tonight. Well, I think the the 100 millimeter paired with the 694. You know, I I often will just kind of pair up the equipment based on what it is I'm I want to image. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. So is the, is the imaging technology caught up to the optics or is it the other way around? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, a lot of people, I, I don't know if I've met many people who realize that uh, optics have gotten so much better in the last 10 years as well. Um, 10 years ago, uh, an F4 telescope would be, you know, a marvel mm-hmm. and everybody's making F4 telescopes, um, or an F5 refractor. Right. Uh, and, and then look at the Rasa, you know, F2. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my Veloce was F3 and that was, that was buying a, a Ferrari. Well, I've had that 
don't know if I had that Rolo chain. It's been almost 10 years. But having an F3 telescope, uh, when I bought that telescope from Officina Solari, that was like, I was a cool kid on the, I was a cool kid <laughs> on the block with the Ferrari. But now everybody's got a telescope that's, that's a lot faster. Yeah. And, um, and, and that makes a difference because it, you, you've got all that aperture and you're concentrating that light down to very small. And it means you can use smaller pixels. It means that, uh, you know, you're not, you're not as much at a disadvantage if you're shooting one shot color that you used to be. Uh, so it's, it's really made a huge difference in, um, in helping us get better, better images. And of course, the electronics are getting better too. Uh, probably the, one of the biggest things that has gone down is the read noise. Uh, read noise being, it's, it's one source of noise that you really can't calibrate out. So you either need to take tens of thousands of images to stack out the read noise completely, or you just need to expose long enough to get your signal above the read noise. Well, when the read noise was 40 electrons, that means you had to get a really long exposure to get any data above that. Now your read noise is, you know, one, two, three, four electrons. Hmm. And so you can get away with much shorter exposures uh, in your stacking process. Interesting. Now, the f where do you see the future of imaging? Do you see a, a chip out there in the future that is being developed or that you've heard about that might be something exciting for astronomers? Well, you know, uh, I think the future is, um, well, I something I call, uh, well, not me personally, something called computational photography, where we're going to start using, uh, we're going to start doing a lot more image processing on the fly while we're imaging. Um, we're about there on sensors. I mean, there's, there's really only, there's two metrics on a sensor that really affect performance the most. One is the read noise, and the other is the quantum efficiency, or how efficient is it at converting light into signal. Well, we're we're already at 90% quantum efficiency with a lot of these back illuminating chips and you can't get more than a hundred percent. So we're almost as sensitive as we can be as far as detecting light. We're going to be limited by how much light is actually falling on it, not by the sensor itself. Uh, the other, the other thing that affects that is the read noise and the read noise is, is down to, to about one electron and isn't, there's not much further down you can go. Uh, you know, effectively no read noise. Uh, you know, we might could see that. It's still going to be one electron. Uh, it's still going to bounce around around one electron. I think we'll have a hard time beating that. But, you know, with, with almost no read noise and almost 100% quantum efficiency, you know, we're limited by how much light is falling on our, on our sensor. And scopes are getting faster, F2, F3, right. F4. Uh, is is to, is not uncommon at all. I mean, you can if you're on a very tight budget, you can get an F4 Newtonian and a coma corrector and get you know great results. Um, you know, on a on a fairly speedy uh, optical system. So yeah, what are we going to do? I think the the low the low read noise uh, is, is a key in the ability to sort of stack on the fly. Imagine you're taking much shorter exposures and you're evaluating each exposure as you, as you pull it in. Sort of like lucky imaging on the moon. Like what if you could evaluate those frames as they were coming in, instead of having a 15 gigabyte file, you, um, you're throwing away bad images right on the fly as you're, as you're shooting. And now you got a much smaller, 
file, they're much smaller video file, and it's just the clean uh, images. Or, huh. um, you know, live stacking. Uh, you know, live stacking accumulates an awful lot of really short exposures. Well, right. if you, there's, there's ways around that too. You could live stack uh, and then like save intermediate steps. And then later on, you go back and you recombine the intermediate steps. I think how the image is going to change uh, and uh, the techniques are, are going to change. The technology is changing. We're trying to use the old methods um, and trying to adapt the old methods to the new technology or the new and improved technology. Eventually, we're going to figure out maybe there's some better methods that we can use now that uh, some of the hardware limitations are out of the way. Interesting. You talk about live stacking, and I recently got the new iPhone 11, and mm -hmm. it's, it's got a live feature when you can take a photograph. Mm -hmm. And what it is, it's I think it's like a one and a half second photo, tiny, tiny movie that it takes. And then mm -hmm. when you look at the photograph, it looks the best image. It, it already figures out which one's the best image, which one the person wasn't moving in, you know, mm -hmm. and that's, and that's the image it gives you. So it's basically, I think what you're talking about is live stacking. Right. Right. A lot of these techniques um, that we use in the astrophotography, we think we came up with it, but they, they actually came up with by other people doing uh, machine vision and right. other types of uh, imaging applications. Oh, uh, there's like an Android the CC, app. The, hmm? Like you said, the CCD chip was not for imaging. Right, right, right. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Wow, that's fascinating. Now, you've written a book on this, or? Uh, oh, yeah. I wrote a, a it, it's a, it, it's a, tabletop book uh, it's called okay. the evening show okay uh revealing the universe through astrophotography it's it's not technical at all i wrote it for my family and my neighbors and uh and my friends so it's it, it explains astrophotography like you were explaining it to your like i was explaining it to my daughter uh, so it's like okay so there's nightscapes you put the camera on the tripod and these are the types of pictures you get and you get a telescope and you do this and these are the types of pictures you get. And, uh, you know, and I explain a little bit of astronomy. Somehow if you go through the book, you just accidentally learn the difference between emission nebula and reflection nebula and galaxies and uh, some of the techniques. So um, yeah, it's, a, it's on Amazon. You can get a print copy or get it oh, on great. Kindle or a book. I'll look it up and I'll put a link for it in the show notes so people can just okay. go it and hopefully Thanks. sell, sell some books it. for you. Sure. Cool. You have anything else you'd like to add on the subject or on your article? Uh, let's see. Another factor. I don't know. It, it might be too deep. Um, the uh, one of the things where CMOS is catching up with CCD is in the um, the bit depth, where you read out the you know like it's twelve bit sensor, fourteen bit or sixteen bit, and um, that actually does make more of a difference than a lot of people realize in terms of the, the noise floors. So when you're trying to do short exposures, you really need a large bit depth, like the 16-bit uh, sensor would work better than a 12-bit uh, sensor. Because what happens is the, the very, very faint signal that you're trying to capture uh, gets lumped in with the noise. Even if the signal is above the noise, when it gets digitized, if you only have 12 bits to digitize it, uh, and the, the noise and the low faint signal end up in the same band, and then you can't separate it. Um, an analogy I, I, I try to use is like, imagine if all you had were $100 bills and nobody gave change. And if you bought a soda, it was $100 and you got no change. And if you bought 
a steak dinner, it was a hundred dollars and you got no change. Well, you'd run out of money pretty quickly that way. But if you had $1 bills, then you could buy a soda for $2 and you'd still have $98. So having that extra bit depth allows you to partition up the signal a lot okay. more finer grained and separate down at the down in the very, very faint area where you've got the, the read noise and the pattern noise intruding on the faint signal. Um, you need to be able to tease that apart. If you don't have enough bit depth, you just simply can't do that. You can't calibrate it out. You can never recover that. Uh, it's called quantization error. Uh, if anybody wants a buzzword for that. <laughs> yeah. You probably know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's very interesting. Wow, Richard. This is good. Um, anything else? Uh, I don't think so. You okay, anything well- else? I, I can't think of it. We covered a lot. This is very good, okay. very informative. Um, how can everybody get a hold of you? Uh, I'm uh, at, uh, you can follow me on Twitter, okay. Accidental, Accidental Astro on Twitter and on Instagram. Okay. And uh, my website is eveningshow.com. Eveningshow.com. Okay. Yep. Fantastic. Well, I'll put links to both those in the show notes as well. Richard, I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. This is very informative. Sure, Tim. Um, Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I can want to thank Richard Wright for coming on and giving us a real great uh, education on CCD and CMOS imagers. Hope you enjoyed it. We upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook on the 1st and 15th of every month. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. And you can now listen to us on iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, and Stitcher, and, oh yeah, Amazon Echo. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon. You can give up to $35 a month, where you will receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I'd like to thank the producer of this podcast, Steve Seedentop, for his generous support of the Observer's Notebook. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the ALPO, is in the show notes. You can contact me via email at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at at ObserversNBPod. Until next time, my hope is that you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening.